Good evening, everyone. Um, very warm welcome to LSE and to this talk as part of the Sustainability in Practice Lectures. Um, I'm Susan Hill. I'm from the Department of Management, and it gives us tremendous pleasure to have John Elkington with us here tonight. I'm sure most of you actually need very little introduction to John. Um, he is a world authority on, um, on corporate responsibility and sustainable development, and is, has a tremendously impressive bio, um, which I can only touch on very few facts of. So he's a founding director of two companies, um, the sustainability company, the um, violence company, he's received numerous awards, amongst many, I've just chosen to pick out two. These include, in 1989, receiving the UN Global 500 Role of Honor for his outstanding environmental achievements. In addition, in 2004, Business Week described him ha as a dean of the corporate responsibility movement for three decades. John has authored or co-authored 17 books, um, these include a number of very influential books, including his recent book, Unreasonable, The Power of Unreasonable People, um, which I've been reading over the last two weeks, and I must say I'm, I'm a convert. Um, in spite of being an academic and being loath to recommend books, I think it's great. Um, he also introduced the concept of the triple bottom line in his book, Cannibals with Forks, and was also, um, also wrote the Green Consumer Guide, a very well-selling um, book, which I'm sure many of you know. He also regularly writes for, um, for magazines, journals, including Newsweek, and speaks at conferences and multiple other events. John is also a visiting professor um, at Cranfield at the Doughty Centre for Corporate Responsibility. He's on the board of um, numerous organisations, both corporate and um, citizen sector. He'll tell you a few of them shortly. Um, and he was also a faculty member of the World Economic Forum. Um, so in all, um, tremendously accomplished, and we're extremely privileged to have John here addressing us on the topic of adapting for climate change in a new economic framework. So John will um, present for approximately 40 minutes, after which we'll have about 20 minutes for questions. And you'll also get an opportunity then to use those CDs, which hopefully you've been given. We can put them to productive use again. Okay, so without further ado, over to John. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Good evening. Um, thanks, Susan, very much. Um, I was actually booted out of the World Economic Forum faculty about two years ago when my co-author was booted out. So I was there for seven years, but I'm, that, that, that's slightly fraudulent. Um, how many economists do we have here this evening? Or people who would like to think of themselves as economists? Thank God. Very, very few. Um, so I've, I've been asked to talk a little bit about climate change in an economic uh, context. Um, and if I can make this work uh, happily, it looks as though I might be able to. Um, I just want to declare a public health warning right from the beginning. Let me just see if I can get this out a little bit happily. Um, I gave up economics after one year in 1968. It was uh, an extraordinary year. Um, a lot of things happening in the streets um, rather than in the university campus uh, where I was meant to be based. And um, economics seemed to have very little to do at that stage with the sorts of issues that uh, my generation were involved in, including uh, environmentalism. Um, 
But it's a pleasure to be here at the London School uh, of Economics, um, despite what I've just said. This is the uh, title um, that I've been asked to uh, uh, speak about. And I just wanted to say I don't know that much about economics. And equally, climate change is, is evolving at such a furious rate that anyone who claims to understand it in terms of the science, the technology, the economics, the business models, everything else, um, has either got a much bigger brain than I have or is probably... Um, uh, in, in, in need of coming back to LSE for a, 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 some sort of course. I won't go through this. Just many of you will know that uh, Copenhagen hosted uh, the, what was called the COP15 uh, conference um, late last year. Uh, and probably not as much a failure as many people uh, assumed in, in the immediate aftermath, uh, which was pretty uh, uh, disappointing. Uh, I think I have to say, but um, you've already had India and you've had China sign up very quietly to the uh, Copenhagen uh, Accord. So progress is being made, but the sense of momentum that was there up to that point, I think has dissipated, and I think that process is not going to end anytime soon. I think that the fact that what's now called uh, Climate Gate, and there have been a number of them, um, the, the sort of scientific scandals have broken out. Um, that's not going to go away. And I think uh, climate science is going to be challenged uh, in probably for several years now. And I think that's something we're going to have to learn uh, how to deal with. This is what I'm going to talk about uh, uh, this evening. Just a few words of introduction, a little bit about the economic uh, and climate context. Then I'll talk about some of the solutions that particularly excite uh, my colleagues and I. And then uh, I want to address the question of how we collectively take those solutions and bring them uh, to scale. And economics plays a very important role in all of that. Politics and governments play a, a very important role. But actually what has excited me most in uh, the period since 2000 has been entrepreneurs, innovators, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, people like that. People are basically trying to destroy much of the incumbent economic uh, system. And in many ways, if you look at climate change as a signal um, of where we're possibly headed, uh, I was reading a McKinsey uh, report just last night, which describes current forms of capitalism as uh, pretty much akin to a Ponzi scheme. Now, you probably aren't all economists, but you probably all know what a Ponzi scheme is, and it's an intergenerational one. So basically, current uh, uh, generations are handing on to future generations a set of debts, which uh, probably they're not even aware of, but it's something that we're going to have to pay a lot more attention to. So let me just give you some discount factors uh, for the economists among you that you can apply to what I'm about to say. Um, it's three companies I've been guilty of, of, of setting up since 1978. The first one, Environmental Data Services, tried to break open the world of business, which at that stage really did not want to talk about safety, health, and environmental issues. And we felt it was important that they did. Uh, and um, it took nine months to get, once we set the company out, it took nine months to get through the door of the first uh, company. It was really, really uh, challenging. But within about 18 months, we were writing the first, uh, or helping to write, the first environmental policy statements for companies like ICI, BP, uh, British Gas, and so on. Sustainability, we set up in 1987, at a time when no one had a clue of what that word uh, meant. And I often say we spent years, about four years, spelling that word routinely. And I still have a collection of uh, rather wonderful envelopes somewhere which are addressed to sustainability and survivability and a bunch of other things. But anyway, um, anyone who read The Economist in 2010, the, the, um, the document that they do at the end of every year, 
um, you will see almost every article, every piece in that uh, the, the World in 2010 uh, document has the word either sustainability or sustainable or both in it, including uh, uh, President Medvedev's uh, of, of, of Russia's uh, piece. And it's almost like somebody's done a search and replace piece for something else. Um, and in some ways we should be grateful, uh, but I'm actually slightly worried that the language is being adopted, but the actions and the behaviors are not necessarily coming on uh, quite as fast. And then two years ago, uh, and a couple of my colleagues, uh, Sam Larker and Amy Birchall, are with me this evening, uh, we set up a new organization, Volans. It's a sister organization to sustainability. Sustainability primarily works with big companies, big multinational corporations, uh, most of them you, you will have heard of. Um, but I incre the older I get, the more I want to break things. Um, I, it, I, I'm not quite sure why, but... Um, I, and I look at these incumbent companies, and I look at their value chains, and I look at their business models, and I see things that probably won't be there in 15 to 20 years. So the question is, uh, what do we replace them with, and how do we do that on a suitably uh, accelerated timescale? So uh, in, in the slide, hopefully, uh, on the top left there, you will see somebody called Bunker Roy of Barefoot College. Some of you will know him from um, India. He's an example of the, the absolute grassroots uh, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs in particular, uh, that we work with. Next to him, Tim Smith of the Eden Project, wonderful example of a project which, where the sustainability messaging is, is um, pretty much subliminal. These people are members of our uh, advisory board. There are 11 people on that advisory board. Um, and then in the, the, the tasty orange suit, you have Jerry uh, Linninger, who was one of the very rare people to be both an astronaut. He was on uh, Atlantis and Discovery uh, shuttle missions, but he was also on the Mir space station as a cosmonaut for five months uh, during the period where it actually burst into flames. Uh, so they managed eventually to put the flames out dis despite rather dysfunctional uh, Russian uh, fire extinguishers. And when he came back uh, to Earth, he did not come back like many of the astronauts did, which is uh, uh, absolutely sort of switched on to religion in a rather strange way. He came back absolutely determined to address one issue, and that issue uh, was the issue of water. Now. Um, Susan very kindly said, and it's insane, I sit on, I think, 25 or 26 boards or advisory boards, and there are things like the Global Reporting Initiative and the Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes and three venture capital funds and a range of different enterprises, out to and including Nestle. Nestle have recently set up something called uh, Creating Shared Value uh, and an advisory board that goes with that. Just one more uh, member of our advisory board, uh, Francie Hansen. Some of you may have come across his uh, book, The Medici Effect. And what it argues is that there are moments in history where complex mixes of different disciplines and interests come together, as they did in um, Florence in the uh, Medici uh, period. And I believe they're beginning to come together again. They're coming together in London. I've just come back from San Francisco. They're coming together. Uh, there's a, an extraordinarily uh, exciting time, but I thought I should put this man up. Um, uh, many, many years ago, um, I worked, uh, uh, in fact, 1978, I did my first uh, report on um, uh, climate change, uh, and my, my brain has just gone completely blank. I've been on six flights uh, recently, um, and it'll come back to me, but this uh, man... Um, uh, was one of the architects of the mutually assured destruction strategy, nuclear strategy for the United States. Um, and uh, he asked me to do a project on environmental issues for the late uh, 90s. 
Uh, and one of the ones I identified was climate change. He really did not like that. He's now dead, so I can say whatever I like. Um, <laughs> but he um, basically said, the problem with you environmentalists, and that was a tag I really tried to avoid at any cost, because anyone thinks you're an environmentalist will discount 99% of what you say on environment or any related uh, subject. Um, but what, what he said was, the, the problem with you lot is you think that you're headed towards a chasm like the Grand Canyon. So what you do is quite natural. It's instinctive. You put your foot on the brake and you try and steer away. Maybe, he said, uh, the way forward is to put your foot flat to the floor, I mean, floor the throttle, uh, and almost do the, he didn't use the phrase, evil can evil act, and see if you just can't get across. The more I think about climate change, the more I think we may well be in that sort of position where we're going to have to put the foot our foot flat to the floor uh, and try and get across uh, this um, chasm. Hopefully my brain will recover in just a moment. I'll let you know if it does. But what we do is uh, we sift endless streams of information. We're uh, trying to pan for uh, uh, stuff that uh, tells us either where uh, markets are unfortunately going or where they might go uh, in, in, in a, in a uh, hopeful way if we um, uh, direct things appropriately. Um, and I won't take you through the definitions uh, uh, in terms of um, adaptation and mitigation uh, on climate. Many of you will know it. If you don't, we can have a, uh, a huddle afterwards. But um, the, the idea of adaptation is that over a period of time, we just get used to the reality of a, uh, a more turbulent uh, uh, climatic state, a warming world, or whatever it happens uh, to be. Well, we've all seen pictures uh, uh, like this of the polar bears on the shrinking ice. The one I really loved was this, which was the Maldives cab cabinet. You've all uh, probably seen it, uh, meeting underwater. Just, just to get uh, the point that the people who are most vulnerable uh, to uh, these sorts of trends are not the developed world. We'll, we'll, we'll cope, we'll adapt, we've got the money to do that. Uh, but there are many people out there who will be, in places like Bangladesh, um, impact on a very, very much larger uh, scale. Um, and then, so it's almost prevention and cure. Mitigation is the prevention piece. So the question is, can we address the sources of the greenhouse gases that are causing uh, the problems and also build the sinks which absorb, sponge up uh, these gases uh, in a way that um, uh, helps avoid some of those uh, problems that I've just uh, focused on. Um, and there's a wonderful study that's just being uh, put together, will be launched uh, fairly imminently, uh, and it's the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, or TEEB, the TEEB study. And uh, it's being, the project is being run by uh, Pavan Sukdev, and if you haven't heard of his work, uh, I really do recommend it uh, very highly. It's a form of economics I can actually uh, get my uh, brain around. This, as many of you will know, is the year uh, of biodiversity uh, declared uh, by um, uh, UNESCO, uh, and I think this work is enormously exciting. And the link back to sinks is that environments that have rich uh, biodiversity tend to absorb much more carbon and hold it uh, in, in, a, in a reliable way uh, to a much greater extent than those that are, are poor. Um, it's a difficult time to make your mind up about what in the world is going on, and I don't envy any of us trying to uh, do that. So we have Al Gore at the bottom. Uh, there, who I think has done wonderful work with an un in inconvenient truth and, and so on to get climate uh, into people's brains. We've had uh, Lord Stern, uh, Nick Stern, uh, in the middle there, commissioned by uh, Tony Blair when he's Prime Minister, to look at the economics of climate change 
very interesting piece of work and basically, as you know, said um, for, if we spend about 1% of GDP, we can ward off problems which uh, longer term will cost us somewhere between 5 and 20% uh, of GDP. Now that seems like quite a reasonable uh, bargain and the UK government and others will tend to say, well we're building in his advice and it's going into day-to-day uh, -day policy. I'm not really sure to what extent uh, that is totally true. Um, I think we're on a, 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 the right sort of trajectory, but again, not going at the right speed. Bjorn Lomborg is somebody I sat next to once in uh, Davos. He looked like a rock star. He was wearing um, Bermuda's shorts. I did not like him at all, but this is not about likes and dislikes. I think what his fundamental argument, and the quote here I think uh, is a very recent uh, piece by him, is right. We've got to think. We've got to think economically about if we're going to spend resources on this sort of scale, where do we spend them for the best effect? But the question, in my mind, often is, is it either or? And he often uh, argues that the way forward is to think uh, about spending and investing uh, in human health care and so on, and actually uh, less in the climate side. I, I think he sometimes uh, misses the, the uh, obvious links. And people like Bill Gates, who's just made his first major uh, climate speech at uh, a TED uh, conference, probably some of you have seen it, uh, is equally persuaded. He thinks climate change is the biggest issue uh, of the 21st century. And why? Because it links back fundamentally into the health issues, which are the core concern of the uh, Bill and Melinda uh, Gates uh, Foundation. And then just on the right there, just uh, in the build-up to COP15, you have four of the BRIC uh, economies, uh, Brazil, uh, uh, Russia, uh, China, and India, who are in this sort of slightly unholy alignment at the moment, uh, trying to slow down the, the pace of uh, responses to climate change. I think that will change. I, I personally think uh, China will come through very strongly uh, once it's got its act together in areas of green uh, technology, but, but, but slightly alarming politics going on at the moment. So let me just say a little bit, if uh, you'll let me, uh, on the economic uh, context. And just remember what I said, I'm not an economist. So uh, in 1994, the same year that we came up with the uh, triple bottom line, uh, we started to map, um, since 1960, uh, a series of waves of, of, of societal pressure, first on governments, and, but very rapidly on business and financial markets and so on. And, and this is the latest iteration of that. You won't be, many of you, able to read the small print, and, and they're simply there as reference, reference points on what was going on in the wider world. But what we think we see is four waves. Uh, the first peaked uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, very much focused on uh, governments and was about regulation and policy. And I love people. Be very careful about uh, your spines. Um, uh, the second one, which was uh, late 80s, um, early 90s, that was the time when we came out with the Green Consumer Guide in 88. Uh, and the book sold to our absolute bewilderment, uh, one million copies in 18 months. It went into uh, 20 foreign editions. It was extraordinary. But it was one of those moments where ordinary people uh, woke up to the fact that something was happening, in that case, uh, things like the ozone hole over Antarctica, and they were, they didn't, they were no longer simply comfortable in subcontracting their consciences to Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or whatever. They wanted to make their own uh, choices, and they needed information to do uh, that. The most useful work tends to be done in the downways between these peak uh, uh, period. So in the first one you had a lot of uh, government policies and um, regulations around the world. Uh, new environment ministries being set up. In the second one 
Uh, you had a lot of management standards, ISO 14000, the Global Reporting Initiative, these sorts of things uh, being created. You'll see a bit of a bumpiness in, in, in the second downwave. Part of that was suddenly a whole raft of companies came under pressure, Shell, uh, Nike, Monsanto among them. But there was a real uh, third wave building, and it was focused very much, as many of you will remember, on globalization or anti-globalization. A whole series of institutions uh, came under pressure. So the, um, the World Trade Organization, most uh, visibly in 1999, uh, and then a series of others, the IMF, the World Bank. One of the reasons why Klaus Schwab opened out uh, Davos and the World Economic Forum was the World Economic Forum was one of the institutions uh, that came under pressure at that time. Then 9-11 hit, and there was an almost catastrophic uh, fallback in terms of uh, at least government readiness to think about these issues like uh, climate change and security, which had begun to uh, link to areas like water, to energy, uh, to carbon, to climate, and so on, collapsed back very quickly into what sort of scanners your airports had, what color turban uh, you were wearing, retinal scans, all of that sort of stuff. We've built out of that, I think, um, and I think what we're seeing now is a very different. Uh, initially, we wondered whether this was the third wave recovering uh, around globalization or whether it's something different. I think it's different. And I, I'll come back to why I think that in the moment. I think it's beginning to bend back again. I think COP15 is just one of the signals uh, that the mood is starting to shift, which is unfortunate, but I think uh, it's a fact. Uh, but if you look at the underlying trend here, it's relatively firmly upwards. The question again, is it fast enough? Uh, and uh, Nick Stern's uh, report on the economics of climate change, if you haven't read it, I haven't read it cover to cover, I would be the first to uh, admit, but um, recommended uh, reading. So somebody who uh, uh, worries very much about climate change uh, is somebody who was the first president of eBay, Jeff Skoll. Some of you will uh, know him. Uh, he set up, he came out of eBay with a fair amount of money, uh, several billion dollars. Um, he set up a number of things. Uh, one was um, uh, the uh, participant productions that made films like An Inconvenient Truth, Syriana, Good Night and Good Luck, and so on. But he also set up a foundation, and the foundation now focuses strategically on five uh, major areas. And, and they've, look, they've looked at this very, very hard, so I think their priorities are, are quite important. And they include climate as the number one, water as the number two, uh, pandemics, nuclear security, uh, and so on, just to declare an interest. Uh, Sustainability, and then Bolland's got a three-year grant uh, from the Skoll Foundation about four years ago of a million dollars. Um, and this is some of the work that we did. Uh, the first uh, report, the blue one, looked at social entrepreneurs. Most of the companies that sustainability works with, and that's probably about 70 major corporations in a normal year, just could not understand why we were talking about social entrepreneurs. They basically said, we've learned how to deal with NGOs because these people can damage our brands and our reputations, so of course we'll talk to them. But these people like Muhammad Yunus and so on, and, and they're, they're dealing with microfinance, why would we uh, want to work uh, with them? It's astonishing how fast that has changed, where mm. groups like City and others are starting to model themselves on uh, uh, the Grameen Bank uh, and so on. But the, the second report then looked at what we uh, labeled social entrepreneurs, the people inside uh, uh, companies that were driving social and environmental and governance related uh, changes. And, and companies, uh, the big companies, the business community switched on much, much more uh, actively 
at that, at, at that point. And many of the entrepreneurs, the change agents, really were very happy to suddenly have a label that they could put on themselves because they felt very alone up until uh, that uh, point, whether or not you like labels. Um, then the third piece of work, uh, bless you, that we did uh, just uh, published last year was called The Phoenix Economy, rather unpopular um, uh, among some people because what we said is we are not in a recession or if we are in a recession, it's overlaid on something more uh, fundamental, we think. So we're not suddenly going to bounce out of this recession. There, there, there is something much, much deeper uh, at work. Um, and this will make me really unpopular with any economists uh, in the uh, room, I'm sure. Um, I came away uh, from 1968 and that year of economics with two economists living on in my memory. And one was Nikolai Kondratiev uh, and the other was Joseph Schumpeter, both of them saying broadly the same thing. Kondratiev, unfortunately for him, uh, said what he thought to uh, Joseph Stalin uh, in 1932. And this was just at the beginning of the Great Depression. Uh, the communists, and Stalin in particular, thought that capitalism was on the road to extinction um, and communism uh, would rule the roost. Uh, what Kondratiev rather unwisely said to Stalin was, um, I don't think so. This happens periodically. Capitalism falls flat in its face and then it reinvents itself and it comes back stronger. Well, most of us don't run the risks that uh, Kondratiev uh, ran. He was put in a concentration camp in 1932 and shot in 1938. But I think he was broadly right. I think what his argument was, if I can uh, distill it, was these very long wave cycles in our economy. And we can argue about how long uh, they are. Uh, but I think a long wave economic cycle started in the developed world more or less when I was born in the late 1940s. And I think it's coming to an end. And unfortunately, I don't think you can just jump from one cycle to another. But there are a bunch of different technologies, as you can see at the bottom. I'd add many more to that um, uh, list, biotechnology, nanotechnology, a bunch of others, uh, which will create the building blocks of what comes next. But we're in a very, very interesting period of our economic history, I personally uh, uh, believe. And in terms of the Phoenix Economy Report, we basically put together a very simple uh, diagram. You may or may not uh, uh, agree with it, but we, we first looked at the oscillation, and we're all used to the oscillation between bull, uh, or, um, bull and bear markets. And the late 90s, period of uh, a very strong uh, bull market uh, with some dips along the way, but we are probably in the most ferocious uh, bear market that I hope most of us will ever experience. Uh, and as I say, I don't think necessarily we're through. And where are we going next? My personal belief, again, is that we're headed into a period where, over a period of time, China and Chinese ways of doing things will become very much more influential, whether or not we like it. And I've worked in China enough to know um, that the country thinks very, very differently about many of the issues that we um, take, have, have learned to take seriously. Uh, in the uh, West. Not remotely all a bad thing, but this is going to be a very different economy that I think we're going to be uh, operating uh, in. And the weakness of Western economies, I think, makes it more likely that uh, Chinese, Chinese influence will grow. And, and, and India and Brazil and other countries will also uh, be in there as well. But then, if I'm in optimistic mode, I would say that um, we, in, uh, towards the end of this decade, after a period of some turbulence, we'll start to see something very different uh, breaking loose. And I'll conclude uh, a little later on with a, 
a note on a recent study that's just come out from the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. It's called uh, Vision 2050. It's been put together by the CEOs of 29 uh, major uh, companies. And it addresses exactly, they basically talk about the next decade as the turbulent teens and the period from 2020 to 2050 as the transformation time. Well, we can devoutly hope. Um, and just a little bit about the climate side uh, of the equation. How many people have seen this, um, a, a number of nodding heads? Um, it's, it came out from the Stockholm uh, Resilience uh, Centre uh, last year. It was launched at the Talberg Forum. Uh, and I'm not going to go right the way around the ring. It's simply to say that in some ways climate change has dominated thinking in the last uh, few years, but there are a bunch of other factors, environmental factors, that are at work uh, as well. Now, linked to climate change, the, the, the issue that really spooks me is ocean uh, acidification. But if you look here at the two issues that have gone beyond the defined boundaries very strongly, uh, one is biodiversity loss, and remember, again, this is the year of biodiversity, uh, and the second one is the nitrogen cycle. And the problem is, every time you breach the limits on, on one of these nine sectors, you potentially undermine the resilience of our societies and economies to respond uh, to the uh, others. Now, perhaps a little bit more positively, but uh, many CEOs would not see this as positive. Um, sustainability every six months with Globescan, which is a Canadian uh, polling agency uh, based in Toronto, does a study of people who are expert in one way or another in this uh, sustainability agenda across a fairly wide range of um, agendas and globally. And this came out last uh, year, and it was quite interesting. This was before COP15, but already you saw water drowning out to some degree uh, climate change. But I think the really significant point, if you're in a board or a C-suite of a major company, you look at this list, you see something very quickly, which if you signed on to sustainability, you've actually got a very complex uh, agenda. So there are probably about 12, a dozen uh, issues here, which all seem to be, by these experts in one way or another, uh, to be uh, not just important, but urgent. And then the question for companies and for boards uh, is, how do you actually decide what the really critical issues or priorities are going to be? And I find this uh, matrix somewhat uh, helpful. It, 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 it looks on the vertical axis at the urgency of the issues and on the horizontal axis at the effectiveness of business and companies in dealing with those particular issues. And you can see climate change is one of the things that is, uh, is specifically uh, identified as both urgent and something that companies can do something about. But they cannot do it on their own. Consumers, investors, governments, uh, many other uh, actors have to help them uh, do that. One of the organizations I find very exciting at the moment uh, is the Carbon Disclo Disclosure Project. Uh, I won't read out the numbers here, but they represent uh, financial institutions uh, and they bring pressure to bear on major companies um, in terms of their carbon emissions and they measure these things uh, pretty uh, intensively. When I'm um, feeling low, I, one, of the, one of the groups of people that I uh, find quite exciting um, and I've just come back from a, a, a study mission to California and particularly to Silicon Valley uh, are people like John Doerr of um, Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers. They're leading uh, venture capital outfit very early into companies like um, uh, Amazon and eBay and Google and Intuit and so on. 
Um, but one of the problems that we're seeing at the moment is that the venture capitalists, having woken up to uh, climate change, and, and John Doerr is one of the people who was enormously influenced by Al Gore, they're beginning to realize that this isn't like the new economy. You can't simply set up a startup company and scale it because you're dealing with software at a relatively low cost. The costs of the infrastructures that we're now going to have to put in place are phenomenal. And the government bureaucracies, the corruption, and the other issues that you hit along the way, also highly uh, problematic. So I think it's wonderful that people like Kleiner Perkins are investing in uh, Tesla Motors, and perhaps some of you would love to own uh, a Tesla uh, uh, <laughs> electric car. I see a couple of uh, heads nodding, they're all male. Um, I, had, I had an opportunity just recently uh, to drive one of these things. It was um, astonishing. It was like climbing into the, uh, a very different vision of the 21st century. But um, when I look for uh, real evidence of where the 21st century might take us, uh, one of the companies that we identified in the Phoenix economy was BYD Auto. Um, Wang Shanfu, uh, I don't pronounce his name for those Chinese uh, here correctly, I'm sure, but um, is the entrepreneur on the right of the slide, and Warren Buffett is the investor on the left of the slide, uh, who put a considerable amount of his money into BYD, seeing this as very much a thing of the future. And last time I looked, uh, Wang Shanfu is, is, was uh, the richest man uh, in China. Now we'll see how long that lasts for, but again, I think a significant indicator that China is beginning to wake up uh, to this agenda. And Tom Friedman, some of you will read his uh, uh, articles in the New York Times, is somebody who champions that <coughs> line uh, very, very powerfully. How many people here know of the XPRIZE Foundation? Three, four, five, six, maybe seven, eight. Um, well, forgive me, uh, those who do know, just what I'm about to say. That, uh, some of you may remember that in 2004, a piggyback spaceship almost got out of Earth's atmosphere, Spaceship One, sent up by an entrepreneur called Bert Rattan. The reason he, well, the, 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 the incentive that encouraged him to do it, he might have done it anyway, was the Ansari, Ansari um, X Prize, and that was $10 million. Um, they're now uh, offering a range of different prizes. One of them you may have heard of is uh, Google uh, has its own X Prize, and that is to get some of you may want to do this this weekend, to get your own robots onto the moon and have them independently uh, roam around. And people are scrambling um, uh, to do this, which I, quite, I find quite interesting. But the one that really uh, I'm, I'm quite excited is um, this year, uh, there is one that is going out um, which is on sustainable mobility. And something like 100 entrants came in with cars. The idea is to get 100 mile per gallon uh, car. So where are they going to race these things? Originally, they're going to do it right the way across the United States. They're going to do it in Michigan, the state which is host to Detroit, which is host to uh, General Motors and Ford. None of which, none of those big major companies came in, perhaps because they were uh, worried. But if you haven't come across the XPRIZE, I think it is a phenomenally interesting example of how it, it's not economics. This is about how you incentivize entrepreneurial people to do things that almost break out of current economic thinking and do things uh, quite widely different. Just a, a final few thoughts around solutions and pathways. And again, one of the things that we did in the Phoenix economy uh, was to identify uh, five stages that solutions have to go through. And we're delighted to hear the other day 
that the Shell Foundation, among others, has now started to use this methodology. Very simple. We almost did it over a cup of tea. Uh, I'm always told in Germany not to say that because German academics want you to spend 10 years and several million Deutschmarks to do a piece of academic research. We did this very in, in, in less than a day, what I'm about to go through. It starts with someone having that moment in the bath or the shower where they suddenly realize a different world is possible and specifically how it might be achieved. It moves on to a period of ex intense experimentation. So think about uh, the Wright brothers um, stumbling around with heavier than, heavier than air uh, uh, aviation at uh, Kitty Hawk. It then moves on to enter enterprise formation. So that the Wright brothers set up their own company. Uh, and one technology after another, we've seen companies being set up. But then one of the things that struck me really powerfully in California this time was how everyone that we went to talk to, whether they were big companies like HP or change agents like IDEO and Arab or um, uh, uh, people like the, the, the city government of San Francisco or some of the startups like Serious uh, Materials or Better Place, we're all talking about their ecosystem. So it's not just one actor on its own, it's how can you stitch together constellations of actors to uh, drive uh, uh, change at scale. And finally, all of this uh, uh, infects uh, the economy as a whole. So let me just give you very quickly examples of each of those. How many of you know Craig Venter? Again, uh, three or four people, but uh, perhaps a few more going up now. So, sorry to keep doing this, but I just, it, it's just useful to get a, a, a sense of where people are. Uh, he, he raced um, James Watson to crack the human genome. He did it in a massively inelegant way. He just mashed up the genome, and then he used supercomputers to uh, pull out the genes. He offended a lot of people by starting to patent uh, individual genes and clusters of genes. Um, he, he, he was the first person to have his genome decoded. If you haven't read his book, uh, A Life Decoded, it's quite interesting. But he's made a lot of money. He's just uh, signed a $600 million contract with ExxonMobil. Uh, you can uh, hiss when you feel uh, it's appropriate to do so. Um, to develop algal biofuels. Um, and really quite interesting, but what he's focusing on next is called synthetic biology. And that's not genetic modification of existing organisms, where you take a gene and put it into a new host. It's creating totally different organisms from the ground up to do very different things. For example, like hydrogen uh, evolution, different set of uh, fuels. He's at the Eureka stage, but he's moving into some of the later ones quite rapidly. Shia Gassi, I won't ask you the question who knows him, but I quite often find, <laughs> thank you, um, uh, uh, a lot of people don't. Uh, uh, he, he is a guy who used to be number two um, at SAP, the German software company, was passed over for the CEO role, um, went to a, a World Economic Forum event in Iceland, in Reykjavik. Uh, was, they were all sent away at the end of a day, working day in, uh, in pairs, and told to come back when they'd worked out how to make the world a better place. He came back in the morning with his uh, partner and said, we've decided what we're going to do, and it's clinically insane, but we're going to turn every vehicle in the world into electric uh, drive. We're, they're all going to be electric vehicles. And people said, just go away. But then they started to think, where in the world would you focus if you wanted to um, switch uh, economies uh, from oil and fossil fuels to electricity? And the obvious answer was, who hates the Arab uh, oil producers more than anyone else? Israel. Well, let's start there. So they went to see um, Shimon Peres. He said, he said, come back when you've got $100 million worth of venture capital. 
Within a year, Agassi came back with 200 million and uh, Nissan, Renault-Nissan in tow. Um, and they, the, the model is very simple. It's like a cell phone model. You, well, it's simple to state. It's not simple to deliver. You create the infrastructure, and then you roll out the products and services on the top of it. So all the battery charging technology will be there. You won't, as drivers, have to do anything about it. What you will do is either buy or lease a car. The battery you won't own. Um, but again, it brings back this infrastructure's issue. Wonderful experiment. It's happening now in Israel. It's beginning to happen in Denmark. It's happening in Toronto. It's happening in Hawaii. It's happening in some parts of Australia. Better place, we visited them uh, a couple of weeks ago, may well fall flat on their face, but a fascinating experiment. And I just, uh, people recognize that little machine. Some of you will, but it was the bicycle that um, the Wright brothers were making before they started making airplanes. And the reason I put it up is, for example, the two biggest venture capital uh, deals last year in clean tech, green technology, uh, were by Google. A lot of people are looking at Google and saying, what in God's name does a company like that, a search engine company, have to do with clean technology? And Google have this very interesting uh, equation, um, RE less than C, for renewable energy cheaper than coal on the basis that if we don't get renewable energy down the cost curve to the point where it's cheaper than coal, forgive the technical language, but we're screwed. Um, and I find it interesting that a, a company like Google is coming into this space from a completely different area. We'll see much more of that going forward. Very quickly, General Electric, um, lousy uh, pollution record under Jack Welsh, really muscular in terms of fending off environmental attacks. New CEO, uh, Jeff Immelt came in and said, we've got to do it differently. Yes, we'll clean up the Hudson River. That'll cost a lot of money. But there's a business here. Why don't we uh, launch, um, well, firstly, rebrand some of the things we're doing, but then really pile into this uh, sustainability space. They set up what's called eco-imagination. Uh, I should say I hold no brief for General Electric, but I find what they're doing uh, fascinating. In the first two years, the revenues went from $6 billion to $12 billion. They went to $17 billion, they're aiming for $25 uh, billion within a year from now. Those are re relatively serious uh, numbers, and CEOs are starting to wake up uh, to some of uh, the potential because of this. But really interestingly, to the climate point, um, just in the period since 2004, GE, through its supply chain, has reduced its carbon in, uh, footprint by 40%, or greenhouse uh, footprint which I think is quite uh, um, impressive. And they're operating in a range of different areas, including aerospace, uh, jet engines, but they're also nuclear. We might have a debate at some stage about whether you see nuclear as part of a sustainable economy. I increasingly am forced to think I do uh, or not. Then an ecosystem uh, stage, which I mentioned a moment ago, and just um, uh, uh, met somebody yesterday who's involved in Desert Tech. Up to that point, it was something I'd read about which is an attempt um, to create uh, the infrastructure right around the Mediterranean, which will uh, link together uh, solar photovoltaic uh, electricity suppliers, uh, a range of other renewable uh, uh, sources, right out to and including uh, Iceland with geothermal. We'll see how far we get with that uh, piece of the puzzle. But it's interesting, I think, that a big reinsurance company, Munich Re, has come in and basically said, we see this as a massive business opportunity, and they're pushing that very uh, hard indeed. Uh, and what they're trying to do is take the risk out of some of this by uh, underwriting, uh, which is their 
natural business. But that's basically creating an ecosystem. And when I think about examples of where the economy as a whole has shifted towards a sustainability goal, in this case, very quickly indeed, it was when we drove CFCs out of the uh, economy. And I worked with companies like ICI and DuPont for a number of years before the Antarctic ozone hole shown up here was discovered. And they absolutely denied the science. Um, you, you always found people who could uh, see sense. But then suddenly the science changed, and they had to get out of CFCs very, very fast. And I think the same is going to happen to us with a range of greenhouse gases, but particularly uh, with carbon. The final uh, point is the Montreal Protocol, some of you will remember, was very much government-driven. Governments are fundamental in all of this. But very quickly, you had a black market in CFCs. And in fact, m more money was made out of CFCs in the waning days of the market than actually in, 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 in the heyday in, in that black uh, economy. Final couple of slides. Uh, I'm just, I think we're headed into a period where we're going to have to reinvent economics. Maybe that's just an excuse because I don't understand economics as they exist uh, today and I want to see it differently. But I, I genuinely think uh, uh, we're going to see changes. We're headed by mid-century, the demographers tell us, towards a population of nine billion people. When I was born, it was less than three billion people. I don't think we're going to strap on those extra three billion people comfortably, unless we're extraordinarily uh, clever. I'll just go back. I, I um, had a, a little uh, B29B up there, and that, that was just the, if we're headed towards a world of nine billion people, and you remember the uh, acronyms B2B for business to business, B2C for business to consumer, then the models that will go and the technologies that will go and the mindsets that will go with a world headed towards nine billion people could be labeled uh, B to nine B. Um, global footprints. Uh, the work that the Global Footprint Net Network, I think, uh, doing, I find fascinating, but really quite frightening. We can argue about the, the numbers, but basically these, these uh, results come from 2008, and what they're trying to show is the extent to which we are within our planetary budget, and the uh, conclusion is that we're 40% beyond. And this is forcing a major set of rethinks. Stuart Brand, uh, when I was a student, was uh, publishing a series of documents called the, the Whole Earth Catalogue. He's just done a book called Whole Earth Discipline. And you couldn't think that these two people in the 1960s and now were the same person. In the 1960s, we were talking about decentralization, uh, going out and having your little geodesic dome home with a solar roof and so on. And now he's basically saying abrupt climate change is coming at us at such a pace. We've got to go nuclear extremely fast. We've got to get people into cities. We've got to get 80% rather than 50% of the global human population into cities. We've got to genetically modify crop plants as fast as we possibly can. And we've got to geoengineer. Geo so some people may quite like the idea of these yachts creating clouds as they go around uh, the world ocean. But once you get into space uh, umbrellas and space um, uh, mirrors and things like that, I think some of us will get a little bit uh, more anxious. I mentioned the World Business Council Sustainable Development uh, Vision. Uh, just to, at the bottom there, th this is just to deal with cities. $40 trillion. I, I don't even how, know how to make sense of that number. But by God, we're going to need economists, and economists hopefully uh, of a slightly different uh, uh, breed and mindset uh, to deal <coughs> with all of that. And then just finally, um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who's thinking I, I, I admire tremendously, 
recently put together some numbers, which he, and they're pretty much in line with what others have been saying, of how much it would cost us uh, to do the technological piece of the transformation to cope with uh, climate change. And he, the figures uh, run from $500 billion to $1 trillion a year, which roughly is about 1% to 2% of GNP, which ties in quite closely to what uh, Lord Stern was saying. But if I were an economist and I was looking for a career, I think one of the things I'd really want to focus on is how do you price greenhouse gases and how do you make those prices stick and operate effectively? Because until we do that, uh, the markets are not going to um, evolve in the way they ought. That's it from me. Thank you very much indeed for your attention. Yes, quickly. I just want to know, I mean, uh, the sustainability where it is on this approach. This looks that is more traditional sustainability. Yeah. Now, uh, you don't think that you need to give more emphasis on knowledge before you talk about sustainability, what is missing? And besides of the knowledge, also the integration of different, let's say, you can say, more granularity issue on environmental, economic, and, and then we can say also sociological issue. And think more on strategy to develop yeah. before than thinking on, uh, let's say, let's say, isolate approach and to bring up this capitalism. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, and one of the things that we've been discussing very energetically in, in the office recently is how do we move from the, 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 the focus, sometimes almost the fetish, with technologies uh, and business models and strategies even, because you can have uh, perfectly good strategies. Um, I was reading last night about India, where if you look at what companies report in terms of corporate social responsibility, in some cases sustainability strategies, they're way ahead of the United States. But when you look at the extent to which they audit and enforce the targets and so on, they set their way uh, behind. But the thing we've been talking about is how do you move towards a new uh, almost cultural agenda? So it's around how do you change people's mindsets? Even more complicated, how do you change their behaviors? And as you do all of that, how do you uh, open it out beyond the individuals and change the cultures which they're a part of? And that's corporate cultures, but, but more broadly still. Somebody wants to find uh, culture is what people do when no one's looking over their shoulder, which I thought was quite a nice way of putting it. And then fundamentally, uh, and most um, uh, difficult of all, how do you shift paradigms? And I think paradigm is a word that's often misused. Many of you will have read uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. But if used in its full sense, these things take about 70 to 80 years to change. I personally think that we're in 50 years and some into a really fundamental paradigm 
shift. And one of the reasons I'm pleased to have somebody like uh, Jerry Lineker on our uh, advisory board is I think the space effort was an absolutely critical element of helping us see ourselves uh, from outside. The problem is that in the latter stages of a paradigm shift, things get quite interesting. And the example just uh, in headlines that Kuhn himself gave was of some optical experiments that were carried out in Hanover at the end of the 19th century. And what they did was to fit distorting lenses onto human subjects. So imagine all of us had distorting lenses on. And you would see the world upside down. But you couldn't take them off when you went home. And so you went through several weeks of wearing these distorting lenses. And something weird happened. Uh, after about 10 days, I mean, people didn't like it, firstly, but they began to feel really quite nauseous, really quite sick. And then their visual field started to wobble. And then a growing proportion of those uh, subjects the visual field flipped to what it should be, despite the fact that the people were still wearing the distorting lenses. In a very, very tiny way, that is an example, I think, of what happens when you start to move from one paradigm that you've grown up in to something quite uh, different. And I think most of the people here are young. You're probably, uh, you know, you've, you've imbibed this relatively early on. It will be a much uh, less uh, um, shock to your system than it will be to many uh, older people, but many of those older people will be hanging around for a lot longer than they used to. And <laughs> I say it uh, potentially as one. And the problem about older people is that they vote more than younger people and they become more conservative. So if we're headed into a, f a period where we need disruptive, transformative change, something's going to have to happen there. But I think, I think we're probably. Uh, 20 to 30 years off the, the, the end game on that paradigm uh, shift. Probably doesn't exactly answer your question, sir, but it's at least an attempt. Could we take more questions? There's one. Okay, there's one at the back there. Um, any others? We could take two simultaneously. I promise to be shorter Victoria? on the next answer. Okay, so if we could have your question first, and then we'll have Victoria's, and John will respond to both. Thank you. Thank you. What do you think about the potential of, of carbon finance and microfinance on the uptake of small-scale green technologies in places where there's no access to electricity? No, it's an excellent uh, question, and I think microfinance has turned out to be an incredibly powerful tool to help um, ordinary people, and particularly women, to do things which would have once been seemed uh, impossible. It's rarely used, although it's increasing... <coughs> increasingly used um, to uh, uh, drive clean technologies. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn. For example, in India, um, one of the founders of Infosys, Nandan Nilekani, is now a, a government minister. And just in the last day or two, it's been announced that one of the things he's going to be doing is looking at how you get the internet to the poorest of the poor um, in uh, India. Now, no doubt microfinance will be used for that as well. I don't know what you think. I think it's a great idea, but I don't think that the outcome of that will necessarily be sustainability as we understand it, because I think consumerist uh, patterns of thought and behaviors and so on uh, will spread as well. But I think clean technology um, can be helped significantly by microfinance, but the problem is the most effective clean and green technologies tend to be quite expensive. And so the question is, can you do that via microfinance? Can you pool it at the community or even larger level? That's an experiment which I think people are still uh, attempting. If you, if you know more about that field, I'd love to know more later. Mm -hmm. Victoria? 
Thanks for that. Um, you've talked to us about the role of business and about changing behaviour. Uh, what about the role of government? Ah, um, and I, I worked for government for five years in the early 1970s and got so impatient and frustrated I refused to ever do it again, except with one example. I, I worked for seven years inside the European Commission when they had something called a Consultative Forum on Sustainable Development. I have never been so frustrated as during those seven years, very much part-time, but because governments really struggle when these big new agendas uh, come along uh, to take them firstly seriously and then do anything coherent uh, about them. And one of the problems that governments face is that business very often coalesces around the changes and tries to slow uh, things uh, down, and very often uh, quite effectively, either directly or uh, through industry federations or lobbyists or whatever. Um, and quite often politicians, who basically you would hope uh, control governments, um, almost do things out of instinct. They think business would not like uh, you know, abrupt changes. One of the interesting things just recently is to see major companies coming together themselves to lobby for effective government action on climate change. So you had the US Climate Action Partnership in the United States, or they should just say that several companies have just peeled out of that, BP and um, uh, Chevron uh, uh, among them, multiple um, reasons uh, for that. But that's again why I say I think we're headed into a rather complex era. But unless governments uh, help frame the, the vision and the targets and the incentives, uh, I, I, I think um, this will not happen at the scale that it needs uh, to happen. And the problem is governments are dysfunctional, often at the national level, but when you then look at the uh, global level, by God, they're dysfunctional. And that's just what we've seen in uh, Copenhagen. And the question is, would we be better off if we dynamited the United Nations uh, and left it for a while and started again? Or can we adapt uh, that institution, which is very much a, a mid-20th uh, century institution? And the question to me is, is the fundamental one is I think the new economy and the internet and the, the, the mindsets that came with that, people like Jeff Skoll, they've, they, they've managed to um, re-engineer and to some degree reinvent business, but they haven't yet done it with governments. And I think, that there, and it's not just about can you uh, put, make your vote online, it's, it's fundamentally about how governance and the business of government is done. And I think there's a huge challenge that we still face there, but that's a very personal view from somebody who has antibodies to much of what passes for government. I'm sure there will be very different uh, views in the room. So could we take some questions? Maybe that has provoked some questions. <laughs> I don't okay. mind taking abuse. Or so let's take a gentleman there in the purple top and gentleman in the brown top. Um, Thanks. Um, when you were with the Desert Tech project, did you learn how they managed to get around the problem of power loss over such large distances. Which project? The Desert Tech project in the, the Sahara. I, I, what I said was I had only read about it. Yeah. Uh, I've not been there. I, I met some of the people who have been involved in it. It's still early stage and the um, people I've met, I've met people from First Solar, which is a Ameri very successful uh, American uh, solar energy startup. Recently, uh, in fact yesterday, I met somebody from uh, a, a German uh, renewable energy company, Nora Energy, or Energy, and I think 
No, I, I'm getting sort of little bits of a much bigger uh, puzzle, but it's still very much at the blueprint stage. But what's really interesting is there are people doing work on the EU uh, policies, regulations, uh, financial incentives, and starting to work out the game plan of how you actually exploit those over a period of time to really drive this uh, initiative to scale. Whether or not it will happen, I don't know, but it makes, to me at least, it makes sense. And the reason why it's up there, it just fits the, the, the sort of the nature and scale of, of, of the sort of games I think that we increasingly we uh, need to play. Individual companies, no matter how large, not even the GEs can do this on their own. They, they need governments, back to the earlier point. They need uh, financial markets, uh, which is why I think Munich Re's um, involvement is so uh, significant. And they need actually all of us, whether uh, as employees or as uh, people uh, who invest in these companies, to uh, play our bit. And I have to, I have to say something, um, uh, in, in almost as an apology, Despite all of the work that I've done, I have a pe pension policy that's stitched together of many different things because of the many different roles I've played. So only very recently I started to think about how I invested that in alignment with my values. If even I haven't done it, God help us. Uh, but I think this is, this is, is going to come uh, together, hopefully, uh, rather faster than it has done in the last 30 years. There was another one. Thank you. Uh, this is a clarification first, and then hopefully a, a, a follow-up question. So the, you, I think it was your last slide, the statistic, uh, and you quoted Jeff Sachs, yeah. or referred to Jeff Sachs, about $500 billion to $1 trillion per year. Is that investment on a global scale to mitigate climate change or mitigate and adapt to? It was. Okay. Cause but it, it, but, but it, has, it has a very specific focus uh, on the developed countries spilling over into the developing countries. I think if you took a population of 7 billion and tried to get an equitable distribution of energy to those people, those numbers would go significantly higher. Okay. I mean, I, well, uh, my comment and then hopefully a question is, I mean, it doesn't seem like a lot of money and, and I'm wondering if, if, I mean, if you contextualize that to say, um, you know, I don't know, I think I read something today about the derivatives market. Yeah. Um, which is just having to do with financial regulation, but it's but the the value of that market is is several you know, tens of trillion dollars per year. Yeah. Um, the, the point is often you know, made. The, the federal government yeah. of the U.S. I think is a trillion plus per year. In other words, I it it seems like there's a fair amount of capital or expenditure going into new technologies, green technologies, and so forth. And I'm yeah. just wondering if if you have a sense of how far we are to that to to that figure that can make a meaningful dent in the in in, in the problem. Well, well, uh, um, as I said, I think it was um, meant to be a global figure, but a global figure created in a somewhat OECD rich world developed world uh, mindset. Um, the numbers are huge, but relatively small compared to some other numbers we're prepared to spend. So, for example, if we go into Afghanistan or Iraq, we spend way more. Uh, than these sorts of numbers without thinking about it very much. Problem is, uh, although um, Jimmy Carter talked about the energy crisis as the moral equivalent of war, we don't, haven't mobilized around these issues in remotely the same way. The reason I use the uh, uh, ozone issue, the CFC issue, is that it did happen. But why? Because people became personally worried that the removal of the ozone shield would open up particularly their children and delicate skins to um, 
ultraviolet radiation and skin cancers would come uh, from that. I remember being in Melbourne when the ozone hole for the first time came up over that city in 1989, and it was electrifying. And we haven't on climate uh, got anywhere uh, near that, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, just I'm channeling a, a, a force from upstairs, but um, Herman Kahn was the person I was um, working for in 1978. Um. <laughs> okay, there were um, two questions we didn't pick up last time. So the gentleman in the far corner, do you, is your question still valid? Okay, great. And then we also had a question from Dusan, that side. Thank you. John, too. Um, Take the kind of innovations you're talking about to scale. I'd just be interested in ways he's being the most likely source of capital. Is that from existing incumbent organizations or from capital markets? And if so, how optimistic are you about their receptivity to that sort of investment? Um, thank you for the question. Um, I meet a lot of people from financial markets, and I find a proportion of them interested in these sorts of issues, and a much smaller fraction of that proportion interested in investing uh, in this space, and an even smaller fraction of that fraction actually doing real investment. So I think we face a problem, which is, uh, with a few exceptions, the financial markets are not electrified uh, by the idea of piling into this space at scale. Um, I also think there's a problem, because although I put up John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins there, and one of the things that we were doing a couple of weeks ago in California was steering 19 cleantech companies around to meet the venture capitalists, I think the venture capital industry itself is in some problems. Uh, at the very, the very great likelihood that it will shrink uh, rather than grow. It's overexpanded uh, in recent years. Um, it's too fragmented. Um, so if we're looking for venture capitalists to drive this, well, one of the problems we have in Europe and Britain is we have an extraordinarily weak uh, venture capital uh, industry. Uh, it's a bit better than it once was, but nothing like what we actually need. So the money's going to have to come from elsewhere. And you look at sovereign wealth funds, they may well actively get involved in this space, very large sums of money there. You look at our pension funds, massive uh, financial assets there, but under what circumstances would you all pitch your pension expectations and prospects and the rest of it into some of these highly speculative, uh, I mean, as I said, with better place, I, you know, I admire Shia Gassi uh, enormously, but the likelihood is that many of the early uh, stage uh, ventures in this space will, will fall flat on their face. Um, so it, 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 it's complex. And I think people like Bill Gates have um, just, what is it, put up uh, $10 billion over the next five years uh, in the healthcare space. Well, that, that's significant funding, but it's nothing like uh, the amounts that would uh, uh, be needed in the, in, the, in the climate change space. And some of you may have just seen that it was the Wall Street Journal ran a poll of people who were very much in the social investment and environmental investment space and said, if you had $10 billion to spend over five years, what would you spend it on? And the ideas went every which way. Some wonderful thinking. But the politics around that are really quite um, uh, complex. So um, I'm afraid I don't have a very ready answer. But one thing I know is if that geoengineering element takes off, you're suddenly going to see the likes of General Dynamics and Boeing and British Aerospace coming in. And they will lobby like fury. And suddenly, very large budgets will become available to do the you know, how do we get the, um, these complex pieces of technology up into space? 
I would personally rather we spent more of our effort and our resources on trying to adjust things down uh, here on Earth. And just a final point, 50% uh, of the world's population now in cities, regardless of whether Stuart Brand is right and we need to get 70 or 80% into cities, we've got to do a phenomenal amount of work, uh, including uh, investment uh, in cities. Again, it comes back to political leadership. And I, I look at Ken Livingston, I now look at Boris Johnson. They've both had the sort of the green bit between their teeth in rather different ways. But have we seen a transformation or anything like it uh, in our city? And I'm afraid the answer is uh, not, um, not as yet. But then maybe if we all vote the right way and get out there with the placards, it'll change. It's a rather glib answer to a really complex uh, question. But I, actually, I think if the pension funds could be mobilized, I think if we could tax the, th uh, the, the bads in the right way, it would make a big difference. But just remember what happened when the government in this country uh, tried to put a tax on, on uh, fuel. Uh, our sustainability office was then at Hyde Park Corner. And for a whole day, trucks just uh, went round and round uh, Hyde Park Corner with their hands on their horns. And the, the um, government backed down. And governments backed down right the way across Europe. So, you know, that's back to voting, and it's back, back to keeping the pressure up uh, on, 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 on governments as well. Question yes. at the back. If, if anyone wants to go to the bar and have a drink now, you're extraordinarily uh, at liberty to do so, but I'm <laughs> we'll, happy to we'll take, we'll take the fi final set of questions after this, and then John has kindly, um, this is after Dusan has asked his question, and John has kindly said he will remain for a few minutes afterwards to oh, yeah, take awesome. personal questions. Okay, so question before Barb. Uh, so uh, you said that we need a new economic system, and I couldn't agree more. So uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you think that uh, social enterprises uh, should and could be in the heart of that system, and what is the time frame uh, that that we need as a society, as a humanity, to reach these systems? Like a couple of years, or tens of years, or, or, or longer? Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, um, I've just come from a meeting where I, I addressed this issue, but not in the way that I think the organizers wanted me to address it, which I love social entrepreneurs to pieces. Um, and there are several of them in the audience. A couple of them, uh, for example, Barry and, uh, Barry and Andrea um, Coleman, they run something called Riders for Health. And those of you who don't know Riders for Health, it basically gets um, healthcare products, drugs, and so on to the poorest of the poor. It does that last mile in places like uh, Africa. And last year, no, the year before, they got drugs to 11 million people. They now handle all of the logistics for the healthcare system uh, in the Gambia. Small country, but, but you know, 1.3 or 6 or whatever it is million people. I love what they do, but that's not scale. Uh, and the example I gave of what would be meaningful, I think, um, in, in, in my world, was Andrew Whitty's announcement uh, when he took over as uh, CEO of um, GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, recently. And some of you may remember what he did. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been under pressure in the developed world uh, for a very long time because it charges such high prices for its drugs. Drugs for TB, drugs for malaria, for HIV AIDS, and so on. What Andrew Whitty said absolutely shocked his industry. He said, basically, we're going to radically cut our prices um, across critical drugs uh, like that to the poorer. 
countries. We're going to change our business model to some degree. So one of the big threats to the uh, branded pharmaceutical companies like GSK is the uh, generic uh, drugs that um, uh, are made in many different parts of the world. And he said, we're going to do branded generics. Uh, and so you start to see people changing the, not just their thinking, but the fundamentals of their business model. Now, if you th think politically about what that's going to do for GSK, GSK is suddenly going to be around the table with governments and with health policy people because they're seen on side rather than the uh, enemy. So social entrepreneurs are enormously important, but I think they're as important as, a, as a, a source of inspiration and models that can then be hopefully scaled. And one of the things that we find is radically different from, with, with uh, social entrepreneurs from the uh, NGOs that we work with over the last sort of 25, 30 years. NGOs didn't like business, didn't want to get into bed with business. Social entrepreneurs desperately do want to. Um, with, almost without exception, they want uh, strategic partnerships with deep-pocketed um, uh, companies. So it's not either or, it's both. And your timescale question right at the end, I, I, I slightly stepped my mind. What, what was that? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm sorry I asked, I, I asked for uh, uh, illumination because I don't know. Um, but, um, and it's going to happen in very different ways in different parts of the world. And if you look at China, which I referenced earlier on, it's, it's fascinating. Somebody recently described uh, the energy systems that are being built at an incredible rate in China at the moment as a carbon copy of the worst of the West, uh, which I think in many ways is true. We're, we're building the old order at a, an incredible rate. So the lag effect in the global economy, however rapidly wake up, we wake up, is, is going to be um, quite considerable. And I don't in all of this mean to leave people uh, with screaming nightmares or build guilt trips or whatever, but I think this is the reality that we're headed into. And the problem is at the moment, our political leaders, with very, very rare exceptions, uh, are not really um, able, even if they're able to understand it, they can't articulate it. And even if they can articulate it in speeches, they can't, even uh, Barack Obama can't do it. They can't take it through to even their party members, let alone the people who don't like them, at the, in the way that changes behaviors in the fundamental way that I think they need to be uh, changed. So anywhere between five years and 500 would be uh, my answer. <laughs> Good night and good luck. <laughs> he, he usually asks tough questions. <laughs> okay. um, so could we have a final two, a final two questions? Okay. Uh, lady there and gentleman here. Hi, thank you. Um, mine is a, a follow-up to that question yeah. and the one before. I mean, to what extent do you think revaluing the economy is the key to unlocking um, the finance that's needed for... Um, I, I missed the word before economy. If you could speak up a bit, perhaps. Right. Um, to what extent do you think uh, revaluing the economy okay. is um, the key to unlocking the, the missing finance component? And I, I, it's an excellent question, and I think it's, it's, it's fundamental. And, and um, I think, uh, as I said earlier on, if anyone who looks sensibly at the environmental and natural resource impacts of capitalism as it's currently configured, 
would have to conclude, as McKinsey just have, that this is just a giant Ponzi scheme, that basically uh, we are running a system which is cascading a range of costs uh, to those who are weaker and currently alive, and those who are weakest of all, the generations uh, who are either very young or yet to be uh, born. I see still, I mean, uh, Jeff Sachs was mentioned, uh, there, there are relatively few uh, real heavyweight economists who are um, uh, waking up to that, this, but it is happening. And I, you, know, you, you start to see Nobel Prize, uh, prizes going to uh, economists who are very much operating uh, into this space. And just a, a positive note, I mentioned Nestle, uh, one of the reasons why I uh, was uh, happy to go onto that advisory board was other members included people like um, Michael Porter, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, C.K. Prahalad, Ismail Sarageldin. These are people who uh, are, are dealing with economics and management and business at a relatively uh, senior uh, level. They're publishing in Harvard Business Review and elsewhere. And so I think, you know, I'm optimistic, but if I look at the entire economics profession, it just takes generations to change these people. It's often said, you know, change happens, you know, one death and one retirement at a time. And unfortunately, I think that is sometimes true of economics. I hope I haven't offended anyone too deeply. <laughs> but, um. Thanks. Um, my, I was struck by your, your image of riding into the Grand Canyon and <laughs> putting your foot down on the throttle. So my question is, you're evil Knievel, what are you going to build your ramp out of to get over the canyon? That's a lovely question. Um, and, and, and the answer wouldn't necessarily be what you uh, or what people might uh, imagine because, uh, you know, I, I could say uh, that I would go into fuel cells or hybrid technology or better windmills or um, nano versions of photovoltaic uh, technology or whatever. I, I, I support all of that. I, I was with Arup um, just a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco. They're based primarily headquartered here. They're doing two huge uh, redevelopment projects of Navy bases uh, in the San Francisco area, Treasure Island and Hunter's Point. These things are designed to, to run on 50% renewable energy. They're, they're really big uh, projects. Mazda in Abu Dhabi, there are a bunch of different things that are starting to happen. But if I, if I had one wish, this was the genie, uh, uh, Aladdin's lamp moment, I think I would go for a technology that would bring home to people uh, what's happening, but in a way that makes it friendly. Let me give you one example. Some years ago, a Turkish design group uh, responded to a, a, an American competition. And the competition was, how would you redesign the uh, ordinary household electricity meter in such a way that people would pay attention to it and engage with it. And at that time, and it's still true, if you go to the United States, electricity meters are painted gray, battleship gray, and they're stuck on the outside of the house. So what this Turkish group did was come up with something called the Watt Bug. Has, has anyone heard of the Watt Bug? Well, there's something now called the Watson, which is a much less effective uh, version of it. What it did, it, instead of being on, on the outside of the house, it comes into the kitchen. And it sits on the counter, and it's like a pet. Very small, looks like an animal. And when your uh, electricity consumption and carbon footprint is really screamingly high, this thing shows a red light, and its mouth parts go down, and it growls. 
And when you're doing moderately okay against a benchmark, the mouth parts go flat and the thing is silent and a yellow light comes on. And when you're doing really, really sustainably, beautifully well, the green light comes on, uh, it smiles and it purrs. <laughs> now, it's, it's, it's a joke in a way, but I actually think we need, there's a moment in Avatar, some of you will have seen that, where people are sitting in the command center and these great, lovely, curved Apple screens are there, and people are moving data around. I was with HP Labs uh, in the same visit a couple of weeks ago, and they were showing technology where you can just scoop information in, in ways. It's about five or six years uh, away. I think we're not that far off in having things that we can interact with that are relatively friendly uh, and that help us see the world as it is and as it is becoming. But again, I don't think technology will save us. I think it's actually how we interact with each other and what you know, the conversations we have and the networks we join and, and, and how we vote and how we vote you know, as consumers and all the rest of it that's really going to um, change this, if, if, if change it we can. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank um, John most sincerely on behalf of the LSE, particularly the Department of Management and the audience, I think from your reaction for this truly fascinating talk. Um, what I found so so refreshing was um, the holistic approach you took, as well as the challenges that you posed to us, many of us uh, scholars or practitioners in various types of organizations, of the challenges that confront us, and um, pointing to some of the um, different models that both social and corporates, um, as well as other sectors, may need to follow to address these challenges. So thank you very much for the thought-provoking talk. Right. It's greatly appreciated. Um, so thank you, John. Uh, thank you.